Hello, literary alchemists. This is Dave Robison from the Roundtable Podcast, and you've tuned in to the Melting Podcast. You're listening to The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. Hey, lexiconosaurs and word chefs. I am Erin Kazmark, your grill mistress. And I'm your head chef, A.F. Grappen. Welcome to episode 25 of The Melting Podcast and our first ever cook-off challenge. Sizzling sounds. Good job. Thank you. So this is, as I said, our first cook-off challenge. This is a writing challenge that we just kind of threw together because one of our authors private messaged me asking if he could issue a duel to another author, and I said yes. And then we had to come up with a name for it. Yeah. So we decided to call it the cook-off challenge. This was issued back in November, very beginning of yes. November, where we were pitting David Doc Blue Went versus J.R.D. Skinner, and they each had the challenge to write a 2,500 word or less short story for Valentine's Day. Sorry, this is late. We've had some issues with silence. But they had to use a cryptozoological creature. Or mythological. Or mythological creature as one of the main characters in this love duet triangle rhombus. Best thing. Yeah. So we'll go over how voting is going to work because you will have a vote and who wins this challenge. Before we get to the voting, how about we listen to the stories? I think that would be a good idea. They should probably know what they're voting on. Yeah. So here we go. Love, Crypto-American Style by David Doc Blue Went Me, short, nature-loving, independently wealthy entrepreneur, own my own castle, complete with secret passages. You, open-minded, family-oriented woman of childbearing age, love of reptiles a must. Brunettes preferred. To hear my father tell it, dating used to be easier. You swim up river, scare a few locals, make a reputation for yourself, and steal away with one of the rebellious daughters. To hear my mother tell it, she was just glad to be out of the tiny one-hearse town she grew up in. Yes, one-hearse town. There were, sadly, plenty of horses. There weren't a lot of opportunities for a young woman back then. Though, she will be the first to admit that living in a castle wasn't quite as glamorous as she expected. I tried that, you know, the whole spook and grab routine, back in 2006, but small towns aren't what they used to be. All of the eligible young women who want out pretty much just up and leave. Damn inconvenient, if you ask me. So that pretty much left me with internet dating. Over the years, I've managed to turn my inheritance into a literal fortune through day trading. So I figured, why not? If I can make enough money to live comfortably for the rest of my natural life online, how much harder could it be to find a compatible mate? Me. Elegant, fashion-conscious, full-figured woman. Multi-talented. Singer, dancer, martial artist. Strong-willed. You, open-minded, 
attentive and generous gentleman. Love of cinema, a plus. Bacon addicts need not apply. The movies make finding your one true love seem so easy. You get dumped. Your friends and family set you up on a number of blind dates. You meet a hilariously mismatched partner. You fight the obvious attraction for 90 to 180 minutes. One of you rushes off in a huff. And finally, one of you does something incredibly romantic and you end up married. Sadly, reality doesn't work that way. Mostly, my blind dates don't last long enough for me to develop an attraction, obvious or not. If I do say so myself, I've got some rockin' curves. No body confidence issues here. I've got the sort of curves where men love to watch you leave. Sadly, my family heritage means that my face has a similar effect. Which is not to say I'm unattractive, it's just that my looks appeal to a very narrow selection of tastes. So I spend a lot of time watching Netflix. A lot of Netflix. Until I discovered internet dating. It really wouldn't bother me so much if I weren't the last of my line. But my parents are dead. And, well, I really don't like to talk about what happened to my brother back in 1989. Let's just say I didn't vote for the incumbent in the next election. So it's just me knocking about alone in this great big castle. And no one to leave it or my money to. Kind of pathetic, really. So. Internet dating. It turns out that there are fewer women interested in four-foot-tall frogmen than you might think. And yes, I have a pretty good idea how many you might think. So, I've stopped using my own picture for my bio. And I might stretch the truth a bit in my bio. At first, I tried to downplay just how much money I have. I wanted someone who would love me for me but I've kind of gotten over that. Now I pretty much put the money thing all out there. I am incredibly wealthy by anyone's standard. I could probably give that reality TV guy a run for his money in the presidential election, but even fewer people want to vote for a reptilian humanoid for public office than want to date one. There were a lot of false starts. I have to be honest, I was about ready to give up. I was even considering donating my seed to a sperm bank. But no. Can you imagine the tabloids? In the end, I decided that if I couldn't extend the line in the natural way, well, that was that. I would donate my money to a charity that supports crypto-American rights, there are several, believe it or not, and let the legends of the Loveland Frogmen become just that. Legends. But finally, the day before I'm going to delete all of my dating accounts, I hear from this one woman, Lee, and it feels like a real match. We talk online for a few weeks, and it feels like we've known each other for, well, forever. When we're not chatting, all I can think about is when I will hear from her again. I don't know if I believe in soulmates, but if they exist, I'm pretty much convinced she's mine. I opened up my profile with a series of bombshell-style pictures with my face hidden, for privacy reasons. This brought three types of men out of the woodwork. 
First, there were the trolls. They attacked the fact that I had curves or the fact that I hid my face, or both. They got blocked immediately. Next, there were the creeps. They were complimentary of the pictures and none too subtle about wanting more. More pictures. More skin. More contact. I'll be honest here. While most of these got blocked, the particularly clever and charming ones got kept. I had no intention of meeting them, but their notes could be entertaining on lonely nights. Finally, and there weren't many of these, there were the potential matches. Gentlemen who seemed more interested in talking with me than ogling me. Gentlemen who responded to my notes quickly without being pushy. Gentlemen who surprised me with little gifts. KT was on the top of this list. He was polite and well-mannered and really seemed interested in me and what I wanted out of life. He was really not into physical appearance, at least not mine, but his biopic was such an obvious fake that I had to believe he would understand my challenges. In our conversations, KT hinted at his wealth, but he really seemed to downplay it. I have to admit, I was intrigued, but it was his personality that really attracted me to him. It was almost the opposite thing from my favorite rom-coms. He felt very rural, almost counter-cultural, compared to my interest in the ready access to theater and fashion that you find in the big city. I played it cool for a bit, but the more we talked online, the stronger of a connection I felt to him. After a couple of months, we finally started talking about when we might meet in person. I can tell she's as nervous as I am. The closest I ever got prior to this was the meeting stage. I still don't know if Susan just blew me off or if she saw me before I saw her and bolted. I suspect Lee has similar stories to mine, but I don't push. We dance around the topic for several nights, and finally, we set a date. I make reservations at a local place where I know the owner. He agrees to close up for the night so that Lee and I can be alone. I offer to send a limo for her. Nothing's too good for this lady, you know. But she turns it down. She tells me that she prefers to provide her own transport. Some might interpret that as her not trusting me, but I see it as a sign of an independent woman. I have to admit that it really kind of turns me on. I started hinting that we should meet, but he didn't seem to get the message at first. At first, I thought he might be trying to avoid me, but he kept logging in for our nightly chats. Finally, after a couple months, he suggests that we meet for dinner, even offers to send a limo, but I decide to turn down the transportation. I've been stranded on dates before and wasn't eager to have that happen again, particularly not in rural Ohio. So finally, the big night comes. I arrive early to make sure everything is perfect and so she doesn't think I've stood her up. My parents taught me manners, after all. I arrived about a half hour early and waited alone for almost an hour. The skeleton staff was polite enough, but I could see the pity in their eyes. They didn't have to say what they were thinking, because I was thinking it too. All the effort I had gone to make sure she felt respected, and I was the one who had been stood up. On the big night, I chose my favorite little black dress and a matching pair of heels that accentuated my legs. KT might not have expressed a lot of interest in my looks, but there was no reason not to lead with my strengths. 
I would like to say I arrived fashionably late, but the reality is I had not anticipated how long it would take to get to the restaurant. It was isolated, but fortunately it was easy to find. It looked like it was open. All the lights were on, and it looked like there were staff cars in the back lot. I was a little concerned that the main lot was empty except for a single car, but I pulled into a space near the door anyway. My mind was racing with reasons why she hadn't shown up. Had I been too eager, pushed too hard to meet her? Had she found a real picture of me? They say that nothing really ever disappears on the internet. Maybe. 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 My self-pitying musings were interrupted as the front door cautiously creaked open. In my rush to greet the woman I had come to think of as my one true love, I inadvertently overturned my chair. Out of habit, I quickly bent down to retrieve it, blocking my view of the door. Lee chose that moment to fully enter the room. As I approached the entrance, I could see a sign, closed for private party. So KT had found a way to spoil me after all. I'm not normally a nervous woman, but my stomach was suddenly filled with butterflies. I pushed carefully on the door and heard a dull thud from inside. Stepping inside, I scanned the restaurant. The lights highlighted a single table, behind which the sole other inhabitant of the dining room was crouched. From my position near the floor, the first thing I saw were Lee's legs. If the rest of her looked even a fraction as good as her calves, I was the luckiest man on the planet tonight. I stood slowly, feeling a little sheepish. Lee? She nodded. My date was even more beautiful in person. I moved around the table and pulled out her chair. It is so good to finally meet you in real life. I think she blushed then, but I will be honest. I was so taken with her, I don't clearly recall. Every inch of her was as beautiful as the mind I had gotten to know over the past few months. From her incredible legs, to her fashion sense, to her upturned nose, I was smitten. He was cute as he stood and offered me a seat uncertainly. I graciously sat as I looked into his big eyes. KT was a short man, but he had been honest about his appearance. I had never considered dating an amphibian before, but there was something about his wide, goofy smile. I couldn't help but smile back at him. When we announced our engagement, my friends asked me, How can you be so attracted to her? You're a frog, and she's, well, not. I just smiled at them and shrugged. What can I say? I've got a thing for pigs. Heart of Stone by J.R.D. Skinner in the beginning, she'd held court in a cave, unusually warm and dry, set in a midstream island not far from the Greek coast. Though large enough for temple, antechamber, and nest, at first she'd sought only the darkness at its rear. For a period, she pulled her meals directly from the same stream in which she dangled her muddy feet, and her nature, as much reptilian as ape, left her with no compunctions at ripping wide her catch with rough hands as her crown of snakes danced with anticipation. In time, she'd learned formality. 
On occasion, it would happen that some headstrong whelp or handsy lovers would cross to her islet in search of adventure or privacy. Then she cared little for the fact that her slithering mane ended both such endeavors with a stony finality, though her acolytes would later whisper that such monuments to youth and love were as great a gift as any a god might bestow. It was the reputation of these once-living statues, combined with growing tales of her sister's deeds, that sent her parishioners. Their devotion, as demonstrated by the removal of their eyes with naught but a red-hot brand, had done much to stroke her ego, which in turn led to her playing their games of ceremony. It was hard to argue once she'd discovered the value of a roasting fire and lemon to accompany her taste for fish. Decades crawled by, and in her boredom she took to learning the useless tongues spoken by the flow of attendants. Though she quickly forgot their names, she hoarded the tales of their homelands. For years her favorite conversations were with a northern farmer. His recountings extended no further than chicken scratchings and sheep herding, yet she could not contain her curiosity about the processes necessary to maintain such an undertaking. Yet, in the end, the farmer would always be planted. In the end, the hunter would always fall prey. In the end, even the greatest of those who tended her cookstoves would no longer need nourishment. This horrific brevity was what kept her in place. What could such short-lived insects have constructed that might be worth upheaval? It had taken Ioannis to awaken new cravings. At twenty, he'd stood tall for the age and his body had been made lean by his familial occupation of oyster-diving. He'd spent his two decades, a blink of her eye, upon the coast, wrestling his brothers and learning geography, philosophy, and poetry at his parents' knees. The day he swaggered into her temple, by then heavily adorned with bronzework, murals, and pottery, he had worn the lopsided grin her memory would come to pull close, like a thick blanket on a chill night, in those later centuries when all seemed lost. Bravado had carried him across the river, around the shrine's outbuildings, and past two dozen visionless clergy. He'd found her sleeping, though he hadn't realized such. The dream-tossed slithering of her wreath had announced her presence upon her bed of furs, but his blindfold had caused him to misinterpret the sound. I have come to plead my family's case he'd said, in a firm tone unconducive to her slumber. Having mistaken her waking hissing as a sign of disapproval, however, worry had given his tongue speed. Mistress, he'd continued, I would give you my eyes and my service, as with the rest of your followers, if you would but leave aside the tithe set upon my patra. You are young for such a life of devotion. Most come to me at a broken age. If my devotion might bring some warmth to your collector's practices, then my allegiance will have been worth it. This she'd found interesting. Not only was she unaware that her representative's techniques required warming, she was entirely ignorant of the fact that her church fielded any collectors at all beyond her limited shore. True, the offerings had grown ever more extravagant, and the residences and altars beyond her cave's entrance had multiplied but she had not considered the hidden motivations of those who claimed dedication to her. If I keep you here as my adherent, how will you know that I have made any change? she asked. Surely no such wonder, as long-lived and potent as yourself, 
has need to lie to a wandering gnat who lands nearby. I will trust and place my faith in you as you ask. In two years' time, Stelios, the former overseer of her shrine, was but a prone sculpture left at the compound's heart as warning, and she was sole master of her cult. Yet it was too late. The reputation for cruelty had spread too far, and mingled with the stories of horror told of her sisters. Ioannis was carried to a barge containing those temple treasures judged easiest to barter, but the swift-paddled river folk were quick to slay those four most devoted followers who had been chosen to take the oars. She was left to cast off on her own. Fear came to her for the first time in her long existence. Even as a smattering of huntsmen's arrows landed upon her deck, however, she knew Ioannis would suffer no injury. The oyster diver was cast in a stone much sturdier than the rough-baked bricks which his people had used to buttress their homes. In a hundred years their shanties would be nothing but weathered dust, yet she knew her grove would still stand. Once she had beaten out the flames of their oil-soaked arrows, there was little she could do to direct their course. But the river was slow-moving, and the reeving party unwilling to row far with dusk's approach, especially as the bravest half-dozen were now standing forever posed, bows drawn, upon the shore of her former home. Using an abandoned oar to push off when the banks threatened their progress, she drifted a night and a day before exhaustion overtook her. She awoke to discover their craft firmly lodged in a thicket overhanging a steep embankment. She could have stepped ashore and taken what she needed to survive from basalt farmers and flinty merchants. She could have pressed on to found another home, another cult, another cool nest upon which she could gather her gifts. Yet the last two years had changed her. While Ioannis had had no more experience with the larger world than she, his education had planted dreams greater than any she'd imagined in her blind kingdom. And though he'd taken liberties none of her followers had ever dared, he'd kept his eyes. He had instead worn a blindfold as he moved between her lair and the beyond. Despite his freedom, he had visited often. He had provided an honest voice among her sycophants, and she had come to appreciate his opinions on more than just her reputation beyond her island. His learning had given him visions of distant lands and legendary sites, and she was pleased to discover he was willing to return and converse, even once they'd agreed her tithes were finally just. There'd been ominous whispers in the days before the assault, but by then Ioannis had been well known as a friend of the cave, and the raiders had gone far to avoid his ear. In the confused slaughter, a mix of the sightless being slaughtered by country lads peeking from beneath their blinders, and the screams of those forward scouts who had risked petrification to their own detriment. There'd been no time to plan. Her Ioannis had seemed so frail, so prone to death. There had seemed but one solution, yet she had hesitated to suggest it. Perhaps it was the same romantic bent he held for the tales of the hanging gardens and the sacred house of Artemis that had left him with so little doubt when her mind held so much. For my entire life, I wished to witness a true marvel, he'd said. You have shown me such. If I am not to be revived because my wonder has fled from the world, then I would rather stand a monument to the greatness that once was. So, 
with his trust warming a heart she had thought granite, she'd allowed him to gaze upon her. For a half decade, she ran for them both, at first poaching chickens and clothing in the night so as not to leave any innocence in her wake as a clue to those who dogged the gorgon. News of her sister's deaths was heard from the shadows of hunt camps and summer fires, but here, too, came one small boon. The cure she suspected existed, but had thought she would need to further root out, landed upon her ears, and she knew what needed to be done to reverse the process from which she had sworn she would rescue her lover. In time, she discovered an abandoned hut in the shadow of Mount Tagados, and whispered into the ears of drunks that a leper had come to the place to die. Setting a sign of caution and trade upon the nearest roadway, a day's walk from their haven, she pieced out the finely crafted water pitchers and hand-shined mirrors of a previous existence for a supply of furs and dried meats. Then, having dragged Ioannis's rigid form across country on a litter of her own devising, she finally felt safe in sipping, briefly, from his limited stock of life. It did not take terrible effort to bring herself to tears the milky white droplets drawing rivulets across the man's strong nose and broad jaw, and, after the din of a terrible cracking, as if the stone of his form briefly argued for oblivion, the lovers were reunited. What followed was a span of discussion, dreams, and planning. Ioannis' presence allowed for visits to town to receive fairer trade, though their romance blossomed upon the skins before the small fire pit in their single-roomed shack their minds, entwined, ran across a litany of the great sights and how they would make pilgrimage to witness them. A week after her silent discovery of Ioannis's first wrinkle, the huntsman arrived. The small band of militia had apparently stepped into the power vacuum of her cult's loss with a myth of their own, a tale that had left them searching for any sign of their escaped prey. It had been the unlikely longevity of the leper upon the mount that drew their attention, but it was Ioannis's unassuming nature that led them directly to his suitor's nest. He'd but pushed wide the door, the ragged cloth that acted as his protection again in place, and his arms full of still warm bread when the attack came. She could only scream, Look at me! And he lift high his bond before a sword stroke lay across his rock-bound spine. Her assailants had come equipped with polished shields, as was told to be the weakness of her younger sister. But they had not reckoned that the very cure for her condition might be streaming freely down her face in fury and frustration at having their already too brief life together interrupted. Though the pain of a petrification that could not happen rippled through her limbs, she used fist, claw, and the sharp-toothed nest of serpents that writhed about her neck and shoulders to beat back the masked aggressors. Decades of flight across mountain faces, grain fields, and ever-shifting borders followed. The children of the slain swore vengeance, and their resentment grew into a religion. For a century she slept and starved. Her hideaway, another cave, this one not so warm nor so dry, provided the only sustenance she might risk in the form of salamanders and low-hanging bats. In her deepest despair her tears would again flow but she was always careful, in those lonely moments, to back furthest from her charge's unmoving form. This was no place to waste his short existence, and his warm memory was what kept her from returning to beasthood, 
though reduced to the brute practices of her most animalistic days. War came, as evidenced by the group of soldiers who cowered briefly within the shadows at her den's mouth. They departed whole and unaware of her presence. But what followed, outside, was the silence of slaughter. A midnight expedition found a farmhouse with its occupants butchered by invaders' swords. She did her best to give the corpses a respectful burial in the field they'd tended. Then, when sure the battle had swept on but before the bread and meat might stale, she again summoned Ioannis. They lived briefly in peace. The war had displaced many, and none who met the stranger at the market argued his claim to the land. Inevitably, the winds shifted, however, and rumors brought the hunters again to their trail. For nearly two thousand years, a sip at a time, the chase continued. They held each other in the quiet darkness of a crumbling Italian monastery until the Bay of Hounds set them to flight. They made love on the stone walls of a French fort as the moon crested above the channel and tall ship's sails burned offshore. They crawled the English countryside by rail, the steam engine that heaved their private car no more or less a miracle than the looking-glasses and symphonies and depths of art that they'd witnessed rise beforehand. Some of the periods between samplings were quiet. She learned a dozen languages, read a dozen lifetimes' worth of books, prepared a dozen estates to which he might awaken. The old cults begat new ones, and for a period of decades a new chase was conducted by a man of singular purpose and self-righteousness. In the end, she was forced to leave him as a monument to his own hubris, forever to be wondered over in the basement of a Viennese library. On Ioannis's return to consciousness, after the victory, his blindfold meant it was some hours before he discovered the stump that marked what remained of the legs she'd lost in the encounter. It was not the broken line of huntsmen to whom they would eventually bow, however, but the same monster they'd fled even in those early days under the Mediterranean sky. In the end, they could not defeat time. Yet she'd shed no tears when she'd taken his thin bone hand, and they gazed together into the selfsame river upon which they'd met. I wish to witness a true marvel, she'd said, and you have shown me such. If my wonder is to fly from this world, then I would rather stand a monument to the greatness that once was. In the years that would follow, lovers often gazed upon their forms, cast high upon the pedestals of the great museums, and the passing figures would sit, briefly transfixed as if in stone, and wonder at the sight of a passion that would stand for a millennia. And there they are. All right, so you've heard the stories. We're going to go to a quick promotional break, and then we'll get back to you on what the voting's going to be like. The time has come, the villain said, to plot of many things. Of heroes, traps, and raygun blasts. Of minions and power rings. And why the sidekicks always die. And why the supervillains make the best kings. Supervillain Corner returns for its epic third season, premiering October 31st and dropping every following Saturday. Subscribe through iTunes or download the show directly from super-corner.com. 
That's super-corner.com. We will be back. The villains will be back. We always come back. <laughs> And we're back. So why don't you tell us about how the voting works? All right. So we have three hosts on this show, even though Theo's not here right now. Are you Theo? Nope. Theo's not here right now. No. Well, we each get two votes because we're special. Basically, we each vote for one story, but it counts twice. So there. So there. But voting will be open to anyone who wants to vote. Uh, There will be a poll on Twitter, at Melting Podcast where you can click and vote on whichever story you like. I will also have a thread up on Facebook, the Melting Podcast page, where you can cast your votes. If you want to cast in both places, oh, you get two votes. Ooh, fancy. Voting will remain open until March 23rd, at which point it will close. Obviously. So that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll announce the winner who's going to receive a fabulous Melting Podcast t-shirt. You get our faces. So you'll find out who the winner is on our April 1st episode. I know that's a long way away, but since this episode was late, we wanted to give some extra time for voting. And we promise not to trick you. You know, April 1st, April Fool's Day. No tricks. No. We will be honest. We're not doing that again this year. Yeah. We're no. we're nice. We've grown now. up. Well, I have. I don't know about you. I'm just short. Right. Right. So keep your eyes out on Twitter and Facebook for the voting and pick which story you like best because our opinions aren't the only ones that matter. We do this for you. Yeah. So we want to know what you like. Yeah. And we do have plans for another cook-off challenge that will be open for more uh, participants probably sometime later this summer. We'll keep you posted on that. But we're going to go ahead and close things up. Want to go over our prompts real quick, Aaron? Of course. I'd be happy to. Still currently open is prompt number seven. Write a story featuring a member of the crew as a main character. And prompt number eight. Aliens have given you a super sense. How do you use it? So, write stories with those prompts. We we need them. Have fun with it, too. Yeah, seriously. This is just... A, use it as a writing exercise and then send it to us. And get your name out there. Yeah. And while you're out, you know, on the internet... Go check out our Patreon. It's actually, I gave you the wrong adri- uh, web address last episode because I didn't know what it was going to be yet. Bad AF. I know, I'm sorry. Bad. But it's under uh, patreon.com slash afgrappin. So search me. You can search The Melting Podcast. The URL is just different. But check out our Patreon. You can get awesome swag for, you know, helping support the podcast. Words, money. Usually a winning combination. They should send us that kind of stuff. They should. Send us stuff. And we'll use it to feed the masses. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you could email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it, as long as you don't change it, don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project. And our theme is by Drew Rich Creek.